fruit. Rockleton's Brunch, every Sunday from 10 to 2. You can be sure you'll not only have the most quality Sunday brunch possible, but every time that you dine with us. Rockleton's Main Street, downtown Sheridan. Everyone's story is different, but one thing is always true. Your trade-in is just as important to the equation as the new vehicle. Hi, this is Brad at Primary Motors, and we recently had a customer whose trade-in had been taken care of like it was part of the family and had sentimental attachment. We already had a local customer in mind, and they knew each other. Both of our customers were glad that they had come to Primary Motors that day. See us today at Primary Motors, 2305 Concord Avenue, or online at primarymotors.com. Changes are a part of life, and with those changes come new and exciting things. Novus Autoglass in downtown Sheridan is changing. In ownership, that is. This is Jim Wolf. Cindy and I are the new owners of Novus Autoglass. I guarantee you one thing that won't be changing is our service, quality, and workmanship. Novus Autoglass now under new ownership at 347 North Main Street in Sheridan. When it's time to restock your office supplies, let the Sheridan Commercial Company help. Hi, Kurt Smith here for the Sheridan Commercial Office Supply Department. We have a selection of office supplies in the store for your needs today. But a huge selection of office supplies is in our new office supply website, SheridanCommercial.com. We have thousands of office supplies that you can order online and have delivered to your office or to our store. If it's time to restock and review the office supplies, stop on by the Sheridan Commercial Company or go online at SheridanCommercial.com. This is Public Pulse, your information and conversation program, brought to you by American Liberty Mortgage. You can voice your opinion by calling 672-KROE. That's 672-5763. Now, your host for Public Pulse, Floyd Whitey. Good morning and welcome to Public Pulse, brought to you by a a new sponsor, Eliason Financial. Now, Megan Kate Nelson is a writer and a historian living in Lincoln, Massachusetts. She's an expert on and has written about the Civil War, U.S. Western history. She has written on American culture for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, Preservation Magazine, and Civil War Monitor. She earned her bachelor's in history and literature from Harvard University and her Ph.D. in American studies from the University of Iowa. She has taught at Texas Tech University, Cal State, Harvard, and Brown. She is the author of Saving Yellowstone, the book that we will be discussing today, but also The Three-Cornered War, Ruined Nation, and Trembling Earth. Welcome to the show, Dr. Megan Kate Nelson. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on, Floyd. And thank you for coming on today. And today is a bit of a big deal. It is the 150th birthday of Yellowstone National Park. It became the world's first national park by an act of Congress signed into law on March 1st of 1872 by President Ulysses S. Grant. Now, ma'am, your book also goes on sale today, Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation in Reconstruction America. And let's set the stage uh, for those who may not know what the time period of Reconstruction America looked like, or even just when this time period refers to. Can you set that stage for us? What was the Reconstruction period? Absolutely, yeah. And You know, Reconstruction, usually we talk about it as the time between 1865, the end of the Civil War, and around 1876-77, when the U.S. government pulled troops out of the South, and the reconstruction of that region was considered to be over. Uh, So this usually we think about Reconstruction in the context of the South. You know, this is a period right after an incredibly destructive Civil War, over 600,000 men dead on the battlefield or in hospitals. You know, the nation is trying to come back together. The U.S. Congress is is bringing those former Confederate states back into the Union, which and they didn't all fully arrive back in Congress until 1870, so it took five years to do that. The economy was a little bit unstable. 
And, you know, Americans are just trying to find their footing. They're trying to figure out who they are again as a nation, right, after this incredibly divisive moment of warfare. And then there are 4 million newly freed uh, men and women in the South who are adjusting to a life of emancipation. And the U.S. government has grown by leaps and bounds um, during the Civil War in order to fight the war, and then during Reconstruction in order to kind of negotiate the peace. And so that's the situation in 1871 when the federal government and Congress and the Grand Administration make a lot of interesting decisions and choices in this moment uh, to bring the South back into the Union and also to bring the West into the Union. Now, uh, we will talk about uh, what the federal government really gained uh, through all of this. But uh, first, how depleted was the North of resources from the Civil War uh, during this time period? Well, you know, they, they were in better shape than the South was. They had spent a lot of money to fight the war, and they had lost a lot of men uh, from all over, uh, from New England, from the Midwestern states, and also part of the West Coast. Um, so, you know, they it was definitely traumatic for the North as well as the South, even though there, wasn't, there weren't as many battles that took place in the North as in the South. So the, the marks of war were not as obvious uh, in the Northern landscape as in the Southern landscape and in some parts of the West. And, you know, they... The economy was somewhat unstable in the North as well as the South, but it was it was in better shape. Um, the financial system was still going. They had issued greenbacks during the war, uh, and so they were trying to find their footing, but had really, I think, come through that wartime um, kind of cauldron, I guess I would call it, um, uh, scathed, but, but surviving, right? And... Um, the U.S. government was trying to just put everything back together to get Northerners back on their feet, uh, to get Southerners back into the Union to protect the newly given rights um, in the 14th and 15th Amendment, uh, protect those for black Southerners in particular, uh, and to start thinking about the future. And a lot of that future they were thinking about was in the West. Now, were individuals, citizens in the North, uh, ever being forced to ration any type of resource during the war? I mean, was that common then to do? Uh, not as much. I mean, the, there were taxes levied on northern civilians, uh, again, not as severely as on southern civilians, uh, who really started to feel the effects of the war Starting in, in 1862, they had blockades on their ports. Uh, the Confederate government was taxing them in kind, uh, taking away their crops, taking away, in some cases, their enslaved people uh, to work on fortifications and things like that. Uh, Northerners didn't have that as much pressure in that regard. Of course, many Northern families had sent their sons and brothers and husbands uh, to the war. Uh, you know, they outnumbered southern soldiers by about two or three to one. And so, you know, the, in, especially in small communities <clears throat> that had sent a great number of their young men uh, to the war, some of those men didn't come back. Some came back injured. Some came, many of them came back with what we would now call PTSD. Um, but they did not, northerners did not suffer in terms of rationing or, you know, having to devote any of their crops or their lumber to the war effort in the same way that Southerners did. And what did this uh, infrastructure look like in the South post-war? Uh, because, you know, I think we all have an image, uh, the the great march to the ocean, uh, basically just <laughs> yeah. burning everything down as he went across there. But, I mean, was that really the case? If 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 I were to walk through the majority of Southern communities post-war, what would I see? Mm -hmm. um, I think you would see wherever the armies clashed in any sort of battle, you would see a destruction of, of farmland. You would see some destruction of cities, usually in the business district. If there were any clashes between Confederate and U.S. armies in any cities in the South, almost always it was the, the business district that was destroyed either defensively or offensively. 
Um, what really impacted the South the most, I think, was the destruction of railroads, because, of course, you know, it takes money to fight wars, but it also takes uh, logistics and transportation. You have to be able to ship your soldiers around. You have to be able to ship uh, weapons and food and fodder to different uh, theaters of war. And so the U.S. Army really targeted Southern railroads uh, to try and cut off that supply to Southern armies. And they were successful in a lot of different places. Uh, if you were to go to Virginia, you would have seen the marks of war all over the landscape because that was the most intensively fought over land in the South. Uh, if you went to Georgia, you would have seen the marks of that march to the sea, but really only in a very narrow corridor. I mean, you know, <laughs> Georgians like to curse William Tecumseh Sherman and, and talk about how he destroyed the entire state of Georgia. But uh, that was a bit of an exaggeration, uh, and he was an easy target. But you, So you would see it in a kind of narrow band, uh, but not all over the entire state. So areas of concentrated fighting and destruction, really across the, the southeast in particular, um, but then also pockets where I think you might wander in and think, well, nothing really happened here, right? <laughs> um, uh, but then other kinds of signs of, of interesting impact like the fact that some fields might be laid fallow or grown over because uh, the farmer who worked that land was gone in the war, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, there was no one there to, to work it. So uh, that's, I think, really what you would find. So a, a bit of a mix of reality and a little post-war propaganda uh, going to work for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, absolutely. We've talked about rationing. We've talked about uh, a, a bit of the northern in, uh, economy. Was the economy in the South absolutely just non-existent at this time? It was pretty destroyed. I mean, you know, the Southern economy before the war had really rested on enslaved labor. Um, people owned people, and that was their capital. And they depended on that labor to work the fields and sell those crops. And so when emancipation really hit the entire South, uh, that meant that enslaved people were free. They could now negotiate uh, for wages uh, and they could withhold their labor if they wanted to. Uh, so the southern economy, which was, you know, they did have cities and they did have an industrial base, but a lot of those factories had been destroyed during the war in some of the, some of the larger cities like Atlanta and Charleston and Columbia and Richmond. Um, and then in the, the agricultural areas, it took several years uh, for people to really get back on their feet, for um, newly freed people to start working the land again and making it pay kind of for themselves. Uh, for the first time in their lives. And everyone's seen the painting of, of the great surrender, but that's really where the work ends for the war, but begins for reconstruction. What kind mm -hmm. of commitments did the federal U.S. government make to the South after the war as far as the reconstruction of infrastructure, the rebuilding of the nation? What kind of commitments did they make? The commitment was really mostly political. Um, they passed the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendments, the 13th outlawing slavery, uh, the 14th providing citizenship rights to all people born and naturalized in the United States, except for, and this is an important omission, and this is the, the term that they used, except for Indians not taxed. And we'll talk about that yes, <laughs> in a moment. But yes, we will. What I said was, yeah, Native people were not citizens and could not be citizens, most of them. Um, but they passed the 14th Amendment, uh, which provided for citizenship rights for everyone, and then the 15th Amendment, which provided the right to vote to black men. And so the radical and moderate Republicans in Congress who had complete control of Congress at this moment uh, were really focused on that shift from enslavement to emancipation in providing for black Southerners, protecting them as much as they could, um, trying to help them negotiate labor contracts, uh, and to really try to shape and determine these new Southern societies, which were in a state that they had never been in before. Um, and 
white Southerners had returned from the war, uh, really hell-bent on, on rejecting all of those new rights and preventing black Southerners from exercising those rights. And so almost immediately on the ground, the former Confederate states were passing black codes in which they were restricting the behavior and the actions of black men and women. Uh, and they were also forming uh, groups that ultimately became known under the, the general kind of title of the Ku Klux Klan uh, to actually prevent uh, black men and women from exercising their 14th and 15th Amendment rights through acts of extreme violence. Uh, so the federal government was trying to protect black Southerners. They were trying to um, punish, if they could, white Southerners who were uh, engaging in acts of violence in this way. And that was their real focus in the South, um, to really exert some control over that chaotic situation and try to rebuild the nation uh, in that context. But amidst all of this, the federal government took steps to found the world's first national park. And we will talk about why they chose to do that right after I take a break. When we return, we're going to continue with author and historian Dr. Megan Kate Nelson. On this Yellowstone National Park's 150th birthday, this is Public Pulse on 930 KROE, 103.9 FM, Sheridan. When you're in pain, it causes stress. Even minor pain is telling you something's not right, and early detection is the best path to relief. Make a call to Dr. Colin Hardy of Atlas Chiropractic. Not only can he alleviate your pain, but also reduce physical stress and boost and maintain proper immune system function. Chiropractic is a natural immune booster. With each adjustment, they're not only supporting the central nervous system through proper spinal function and alignment, but also stimulating and strengthening the immune system by removing nerve interferences and stressors that can drag it down. Call 307-672-6000 for details and scheduling with the top chiropractic clinic in Sheridan, Atlas Chiropractic. This is Dr. Colin Hardy with Atlas Chiropractic. Be sure to ask us about our new patient specials. Take the first step to a better you. Call 672-6000. That's 672-6000. Your healing begins when you pick up the phone. Hi, this is Chance Harris. And I'm Laura Wichick. Did you know Harker Mellinger provides services to help you with your payroll and accounting problems or business concerns? Schedule an appointment today to discuss how our professional staff can find the solutions that work best for you. Harker Mellinger has been providing quality service for Sheridan area businesses for over 37 years. Remember, you get our exclusive fixed fee, one monthly fee, unlimited phone calls and meetings. Call Harker Mellinger today, 672-0785. Do you love what you do? Well, I do. Hi, this is Jill Bates with Best Real Estate. I have the pleasure of working with many amazing people every day, assisting them with the next chapter, whether buying or selling. Real estate is not just looking at pretty homes. There are lots of hoops, steps, and challenges to overcome and people to coordinate to achieve a successful closing. We don't expect you to know what to do. You don't do this every day like we do. Let me and my outstanding and caring team at Best Real Estate be your guide and make the start of your next chapter a success. Give us a call today. 675-BEST. As always, make it a great day. Good morning and welcome back to Public Pulse, brought to you by Eliason Financial. I'm Floyd Whiting. This morning, we're honored to be speaking with author and historian Dr. Megan Kate Nelson. Her new book, Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation in Reconstruction America, is available starting today on Yellowstone National Park's 150th birthday. And if you're just joining us, Dr. Nelson has set the stage for the reconstruction period of the United States during uh, post-Civil War time. Ma'am, what did the federal government really know of Yellowstone during this time period? They knew almost nothing. And, and this was something that was very interesting to me because, you know, indigenous communities had been using Yellowstone for thousands of years as a thoroughfare, as a campsite, as a hunting ground. And, of course, you know, they told stories of its natural wonders uh, to traders and scouts who found it very hard to believe. And then trappers and some gold miners kind of went into the park for various reasons, and they came out 
with similar stories, but no one believed them either, right? Because a lot of these guys were known as just inveterate liars who would tell <laughs> yeah. all of these tall tales, right, yeah. uh, around the campfire. And so people just thought they were exaggerating. They thought there was no way that there could be, you know, cliffs made of glass and bubbling mud lakes and geysers shooting water 200 feet into the air. They just thought that was insane. And, you know, Yellowstone as I think a lot of your, your listeners probably know, it's actually quite hard to get to, and it's quite inaccessible. And in the 1850s and 60s, uh, it was especially hard because unless you were already in the West, it was very difficult to get there during a time period when you could actually visit it and cross through um, into the canyons and along the rivers into the actual basin itself. And so in 1871, Yellowstone was one of the only unmapped places uh, in the continental United States. Oh, wow. It was still unmapped at this time. Yes, indeed. No one had been in it. There had been a couple of amateur outfits that had gone uh, from Montana from the, into the northern entrance along the Yellowstone River in 1869 and then in 1870. And the 1870 trip had actually caused a sensation uh, because they lost one of their team members, Truman Everts. Uh, he wandered away from the group around Yellowstone Lake, got lost in the forest. They had to give him up for dead and, and leave it, unless, you know, because they were coming up on September and they were going to get snowed in. And he survived on his own eating nothing but thistle roots for 37 days uh, in Yellowstone. And when they wow. finally found him, he... Yeah, he actually recovered, which is remarkable, uh, but his story was a sensation, and Yellowstone made national news because of that. And uh, two members of that expedition published reports, you know, published their accounts, including Truman Everts, who was lost. And the leader of that expedition, Nathaniel Langford, started out on a lecture tour. And he was a Montana official. He was a booster. He had come there in the 1860s during the gold rush. And he really wanted to draw attention to Yellowstone and, and get uh, white settlers to come out there. Um, again, part of that vision of the West is the future, right, of the nation. And so uh, this kind of created a lot of national attention for Yellowstone and caught the attention also of Ferdinand Hayden, who was a geologist and explorer and the leader of uh, the U.S. survey at the time. And, you know, he had tried to get to Yellowstone actually in 1860, but had been turned back at the Wind River Mountains and they couldn't, they just could not get in. And he had always wanted to go back and he was a little bit threatened, I think, by the fact that these amateurs had gotten there before him. And so he made plans in the spring of 1871, started lobbying Congress for money uh, to allow him to put together a scientific team and explore Yellowstone for the first time officially. And so was it really his information that influenced a lot of this? It really was, yes. Uh, Ferdinand Hayden was a really fascinating guy. He's one of the three protagonists in Saving Yellowstone, and for good reason. Um, he grew up in poverty, uh, child of divorce. His family figured out that he was quite smart and managed to send him to Oberlin, for his undergraduate education. And it was really there that he developed an interest in science. He really liked being out in the field. He developed uh, this really kind of amazing talent for gathering up fossils, which, you know, is a kind of strange talent to have. And you wouldn't think that it would take much, but it actually does uh, require a really good eye and a knowledge of geological science to really look at, you know, a rocky outcropping and find the fossils there and understand how significant they are. And he had that talent, and he loved to be out there. And so he started his explorations really in the 1850s. He worked for a couple of military expeditions, uh, and then he led his own survey starting in the, the late 1860s. But this was a time before the USGS. And so all of the surveyors out in the field had to lobby for money every single year. And, all, you know, some were scientists, some were military men, uh, some were just adventurers. Um, but Fernand Hayden really wanted to claim Yellowstone for geological science. And he was a great team leader. He was a pretty good scientist. His most effective talent, actually, was writing for pub 
popular audiences. And so when he came out of Yellowstone in September 1871, he had 45 boxes of specimens that he had sent to the Smithsonian. And he immediately set about writing both his report for Congress, which he was he had to do. Uh, it was a condition of his funding. Uh, and he also started writing a piece for Scribner's Monthly and pieces for other popular uh, journals so that he could get the word out about Yellowstone. And this was really, he made a huge impact. He really brought Yellowstone into the American imagination in this moment. And with that fire being fueled, uh, do we know who really devised this whole national park protection idea? We do. And, and you know, this, this has been a matter of some debate. <laughs> and Because originally Nathaniel Langford, who had been the head of that 1870 expedition, had started to spread the story uh, that it was his group that came up with the national park idea that on their way out of the park, after they had lost and left behind Truman Everts, um, they had talked about Yellowstone and how they should develop it, and then they had this revelation that they should save it for the people. So Nathaniel Langford liked to take credit for this, and this actually became the origin story of the park for a while, until park historians started to investigate, and what they discovered was that Hayden, you know, he came out of Yellowstone, and he was really interested. He wanted to to really keep it as a scientific laboratory and do more surveys there um, and more scientific studies. But it was a letter he received in October when he returned uh, from the PR man of the Northern Pacific Railroad, uh, which was being run at the time by Jay Cook, who was an investment banker from Philadelphia. And they had been very interested in the Hayden Expedition because they thought it would bring tourists to their railroad, which they had not yet built. Uh, from the Great Lakes uh, to the Pacific Coast. And this guy, A.B. Nettleton, wrote to wrote to um, Hayden and said, look, you know, we've been talking with this guy whose nickname was Pig Iron Kelly. Uh, he was a Philadelphia politician who was in bed with the railroads. And he said he had a really good idea that we should save uh, Yellowstone as a national park, so maybe you could include that in some of your reports. Now, and Hayden immediately saw the opportunity there. And so how how was this new idea received by legislators at this time who essentially have just got their hands full trying to rebuild a nation? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, th this was one of my central questions. You know, why would the 42nd Congress, which is, you know, in the middle of trying to reconstruct the South and, and reconstruct the nation, you know, why would they even care about this? You know, the, the idea of saving nature for people uh, for their benefit and to take it out of commercial production, you know, was not a new one. I mean, this is why we have city parks and town squares uh, and the, the whole rural cemetery movement uh, emerged out of this idea. Um, and there was, in fact, a precedent in 1864. In the middle of the Civil War, the U.S. government gave Yosemite and Mariposa Grove to the state of California to manage. Uh, but the idea behind the national park was different. It was they were purporting to take lands, and at this point it was about 1,760 square miles, and, and Yellowstone is about twice as big as that now, um, but they wanted to take that much land out of production, take it from Wyoming territory and uh, a little bit of Idaho and a little bit of Montana and give it to the federal government to manage, give it to the Department of the Interior for the benefit and the enjoyment of the people. And that was unprecedented. And it created a lot of controversy. Uh, I think now we, you know, national parks are so embedded in our consciousness that we think, oh, well, of course, everyone must have loved them. We right, love them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sure, you know, well, I'm sure no one had any objections to this because why would they? But actually, members of both parties had big problems with this because they believed what was more important than the right of people to, to be in nature and to appreciate it was the people's right to take up land and farm it or ranch it or mine it. And, you know, this whole idea, it goes all the way back to Jefferson and the agrarian myth. Uh, during the Civil War, the U.S. Congress had also passed the Homestead Act, which gave, you know, anyone loyal to the Union 160 acres for a very cheap price. 
And most white Americans believe that this was their right. It was their right. They had squatters rights. They had preemption rights, which meant that they could, you know, kind of take up land and buy it at the cheapest price from the government. And this kind of land taking, where you just take land from territories and states and give it to the government, that just seemed to fly in the face of that right. And so there were there were moderate Republicans, most, many of them from the West and the Midwest, and then a whole boatload of Democrats. And it's important to note that in this moment, the, the political parties were sort of flipped from as we know them today. Uh, the Republicans were all about big government, providing for the people, social programs. Uh, and the Democrats were very much about state rights and local control. And so, but there were many of them who agreed on this, that, uh, you know, the federal government should not be ex- extending its power in this way and that it was too much. And I could see why. Uh, Not too many years previous, the nation had to separate from an individual over (laughs) across the ocean who thought that he owned everything and and that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to own land was a privilege uh, instilled by him and him alone. So I could I could see, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of that is not the way that this country works. And, and Doc, I know there's a lot of variables that influence this decision. But, uh, you know, what was the ultimate uh, thing that really changed their minds with all this going on in the South? Uh, why did the federal mm-hmm. government finally just say, you know what, we're just we're going to do it. We're, we're going to go ahead and take this big step and seize land for the control of the federal government. Well, I think part of it is explained by the fact that Republicans have such a huge majority in Congress at this moment. So even though 70% of Democrats voted against the Yellowstone Act and about 11% of Republicans voted against it, the Republicans who were voting yes and some of the Democrats who voted yes, had they, they just so vastly outnumbered the opponents that the act passed. So it was not unanimous, but it was actually bipartisan. Uh, but it is attributable to the fact that, that Republicans who believed in federal power, who believed in this kind of higher purpose of using federal power for this higher ideal um, of something that would benefit the people in a kind of spiritual and cultural way rather than an economic way, um, they were in the clear majority. So that was helpful uh, to Hayden as he was lobbying, and also the the folks from the Northern Pacific who were lobbying for this too. Um, but I think also they were very persuaded that Yellowstone and everything that Hayden had discovered there was unique in the world. And this was actually true. I mean, the Geyser Basin in particular is the largest collection of geothermal features in the world by far. Um, and, you know, they had already discovered geysers and, and in Iceland and in New Zealand, and obviously there are hot springs all over the country. But, I mean, the thousands and thousands of features were just phenomenal. And this seemed to speak to this American idea, this real pride in being what they called nature's nation, that maybe America didn't have this, you know, long, long, long history of ancient civilizations, you know, except for indigenous peoples, but they didn't really count that. Um, and, And so what we found our kind of uniqueness and our exceptional nature in was, in fact, mountains and waterfalls and amazing geological features. And that this place, Yellowstone, really proved that America was exceptional. And I think during Reconstruction, especially, you know, in the wake of this incredibly destructive war, Americans were looking for that. They were looking for something to believe in. And I think it's a a little bit somewhat akin, um, you know, the, the Mars project, the Perseverance project, Absolutely. And how in the middle of the, yeah, in the middle of the pandemic, I mean, I don't know if you became obsessed with it, but I totally did. And I watched the landing live and it was just so exciting to see all the scientists were all excited and cheering. And it was this great achievement. And it felt really good to feel proud of something, right? And to feel optimistic. Yeah. And and, and hope. It's just over the mountain. Hope is just over the mountain. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I think that that's what Yellowstone was providing. I mean, someone, one of uh, Hayden's scientific colleagues wrote to him after the passage of the act and said, you know, the national park idea is an idea that only could have originated in America. Wow. Yeah. And so there was that belief, too, that Yellowstone was essentially American. And then the national park idea was essentially American. And both of those things were something to be proud of. And I would absolutely agree. i got to take a quick commercial break. When we return, we're going to continue with author and historian Dr. Megan Kate Nelson on this Yellowstone National Park's 150th birthday. This is Public Pulse on 930 KROE and 103.9 FM. Sheridan. Hi, this is Sheridan College Rodeo athlete Devin Dixon inviting you to our 12th annual Sheridan College Rodeo Banquet Saturday, March 5th at Sheridan College Golden Dome. Doors open at 5.30, dinner is at 6.30. Silent auction and live auctions and music by Tris Munsick. Tickets are only $75 but have to be purchased in advance. This is our biggest scholarship fundraiser. Call the Sheridan College Foundation at 675-0702 for tickets. Presented in part by Sheridan Wild Rodeo Gold Buckle Club and Prime Rate Motors. We hate unnecessary fees. At First Federal Bank and Trust, we offer local cash management services to save you time and money. We're here to help local businesses succeed, not make money from fees. Costs are on the rise, and just like shopping for insurance, your current cash management services could use a review. Contact Kim Wells and learn how First Federal's business products and services benefit you. First Federal Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Hi, this is Sherry from Whitney Plaza Dental. Constant pressure from chewing, grinding, or clenching can cause your fillings or restorations to wear away, chip, or crack, allowing decay-causing bacteria to work their way under the restoration, which can lead to an abscess. My husband, Dr. Kevin McCurry, can identify those issues before they become problems. For more information, visit our website at WhitneyPlazaDental.com or call me at 675-1905. Good morning and welcome back to Public Pulse, brought to you by Ellison Financial. I'm Floyd Whiting. This morning, we're honored to be speaking with author and historian Dr. Megan Kate Nelson. Her new book, Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation in Reconstruction America, is available starting today on Yellowstone National Park's 150th birthday. Now, we've looked at what Reconstruction period is. We've looked at how the idea of a national park came to fruition. Now let's take a look out west. Doc, out west, it's still a land of independent Native American nations and wilderness, correct? Yes, and in fact, I mean, there had been, in 1868, a peace commission sent out by the Johnson administration, which did negotiate several treaties, the most important of which was the Fort Laramie Treaty. And so there were... Several indigenous groups, including the Crow and the Shoshone and the Shoshone Bannock, who were already removed to reservations uh, around Yellowstone, kind of on the southern and the, the southwestern and the northern side of Yellowstone, by the time Hayden arrived. Uh, but the Lakota peoples to the east, who claimed territory from the Missouri River all the way west to the, the Yellowstone Basin, uh, were still in control of their lands and had been really from the 1860s, from the time that white miners started to cross their lands to try and get to the northern Rockies as part of the Montana gold rush, had really been uh, resisting that migration and also asserting their sovereignty across their homeland. Um, so, And we don't know if the Lakota really knew about Hayden's survey itself. There are interesting ways that their presence and their actions shaped Hayden's decisions, but uh, who they were really concerned about was another survey team in the field, which had been sent by Jay Cook and the Northern Pacific Railroad to determine a route right through the heart of their homeland uh, for those Northern Pacific Railroad tracks. So how did indigenous people, uh, particularly the the Hunkpapa Lakota, assert that sovereignty in that region during that time? Was this a war to them? 
Ah, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the the leader who emerges at this time, even though there were many different band leaders of the Lakota uh, and also of different bands of the Hunkapa, uh, was Sitting Bull. And he kind of emerged into the American consciousness at the same time as Yellowstone. You start to see Indian agents and territorial officials and soldiers start to mention his name specifically more and more. And it's because in this period, he really decided with uh, his council that they were going to choose the path of home defense and that they were not going to negotiate peace agreements. They were not going to move on to reservations. They were going to continue to live as they had always lived, uh, moving uh, between different parts of their territory in the seasons, you know, hunting buffalo in the fall, uh, gathering together in summer camps. Uh, and, you know, settling down for the winter. And they were going to continue to do that and defend their right to do that and defend their ownership of the land uh, as they saw it. Um, And they came under more and more pressure during this period. And, you know, I think a a lot of the time we focus uh, in this period and with Sitting Bull only on the Battle of Little Bighorn which takes place in in July of of 1876. But really, in Saving Yellowstone, I am arguing that we see the kind of path to Little Bighorn uh, begin in 1871-72. And it is with Sitting Bull's acts of resistance against the Northern Pacific surveyors. Uh, He does a couple of different things. He surveils them to see where they're going. He lights some fires to try to dissuade them. Uh, His men attack the U.S. Army soldiers that are accompanying and trying to protect the surveyors three different times in 1871, 72, and 73. And they were successful. They actually really drove the Northern Pacific into the ground, so much so that by the end of of that kind of long campaign, William Tecumseh Sherman, who was the general of the armies, was like, the Lakota are going to fight every foot of the line. And he was right about that. Uh, because Sitting Bull had determined that that's what he was going to do. And and but now the war in the South is done. Hey, we've got an experienced general sitting in charge of everything. What steps did the U.S. Army take once it was decided that this was going to be a national park? Right. This is, I mean, this is something that was also so interesting to me about this particular moment of seventy one, seventy two. Because Ulysses S. Grant, he's such an interesting president. I think most people discount him and just think about his corruption and, you know, lack of presidential demeanor. And, you know, those those things did happen, and we should take account his of those. His many but failing businesses. <laughs> his many failing businesses. Um, but in this moment, he did two very interesting things. And one was uh, that he appointed an attorney general from the South named Amos Akerman, who Uh, really ran and um, directed a legal campaign against the KKK in 1871 and 1872 through created Department of Justice. And Grant was was absolutely in favor of that whole thing because he had been a good friend of Lincoln's. He believed that the war efforts, you know, biggest gain was emancipation and black freedom. And he believed that white Southerners were in rebellion yet again uh, by trying to deprive black Southerners of their citizenship rights. And so he was all in favor of that campaign uh, in the South. And then he also, in the West, he appointed Ely Parker, who, you know, if you're a Civil War person, you know that Ely Parker was on his staff during the Civil War. He was the one who wrote out uh, the orders of um, surrender at Appomattox. And, yeah, and there's a whole story. This is actually quite apocryphal, uh, but uh, Ely Parker used to like to tell this story that when he wrote them out and Lee got up to go, he kind of looked at Ely Parker and realized that he was Seneca, realized he was an indigenous person, and was kind of like, what are you doing here? And Ely Parker purportedly said to him, we are all Americans. Fantastic. And, you know, this, this is, you know, an epic moment. It's probably not true. Uh, but <laughs> but it's uh, a great story, right, Doc? But it's a great story. It's a really great story. And Ely Parker and, and Ulysses S. Grant were great friends. And 
Grant appointed him a commissioner of Indian Affairs. He was the first indigenous person to hold a, ho- uh, hold a post like that. Um, it wasn't cabinet level, but it was very high level. And Ely Parker had an interesting vision for indigenous citizenship. He was one of those people who believed in assimilation, but his idea was to bring indigenous communities all together into two or three different territories and then actually give those territories territorial status and then allow them to become states so that indigenous peoples would have representation in Congress. Wow. At the time, yes, this is pretty progressive. At the time, um, yes, incredibly progressive. And Ulysses S. Grant's uh, slogan in his campaign in 1868 was, let us have peace. And by that, he meant let us, the North and the South, have peace, but also the East and the West and the U.S. federal government and Native people. So he was very interested in this, and Ely Parker kind of helped push him toward this more progressive view. But then... Because of a lot of uh, political turmoil, which I go into more detail in in, in the book, uh, Ely Parker resigns in the summer of 1871. And Grant really just never takes up that progressive agenda again uh, without Ely Parker there to push him. And so he turns to what he was most familiar with, which was military campaigns. And so he puts his federal executive power behind an increasingly aggressive uh, campaign against Native people, and especially groups like the Hunkpapa Lakota um, in the Yellowstone region, and basically says, we're not going to sign any more treaties with you. You're going to remove to reservations. You're going to come in and surrender at the forts, or we're going to make war upon you. And as we say uh, in that portion, the rest is... uh history. We just kind of went yeah. in and, and emptied out Yellowstone. Now, would we say that this was really the defining moment? Uh, you know, we the armies come in. It has pushed out uh, the Native Americans in the area. Congress has, has passed an act, uh, and now Yellowstone is officially uh, a national park. How is Yellowstone connected to other federal projects during this Reconstruction period? And I only have about four minutes left, ma'am. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, I I think I see Yellowstone as one of several federal projects in this period where the Republican Party in particular is trying to use whatever power they have to reach for something higher. So when they go after the KK in the South, they are actually using the federal government power to protect the country's most vulnerable citizens, right? And when they ultimately abandon that by 1873, it'll be another almost 100 years until the federal government acts on behalf of black Americans again, Mm -hmm. you know, with the civil rights movement. So this is this sort of extraordinary moment of great height, but also, you know, you know what's coming, which is an abandonment of that project. And then with Yellowstone, they are also reaching for this higher ideal of saving this land for the benefit of the people. Yet we don't get our second really large national park until 1890. So it's, again, almost 20 years. (laughs) So it's not like... The Grant administration and and that Congress kind of goes into a frenzy of national park creation. In fact, they do almost nothing, and they give almost no money to the superintendents to do anything with Yellowstone. Part of that has to do with the with continued Lakota resistance. Uh, there was no real tourism of any real kind over a thousand people uh, until the late 1870s. Uh, And really until 1883, when the Northern Pacific was finally completed and tourists could actually get out there in a reasonable amount of time. Um, So it's this kind of fascinating moment when Republicans are are embracing this federal power and the extension of it across the country um, and connecting these projects in the West and the South. Uh, But also pretty quickly, they abandon uh, those projects. And in fact, they lose uh, control of the House and the and the Senate and the executive branch uh, in 1874. And so they really don't have 
that majority that they would have needed to continue those projects onward. Now, I would assume or I would imagine that uh, once Democrats took uh, the the power back uh, or, or from the Republicans, they, they were probably primarily concerned about rebuilding the South, right? Uh, just a quick yes or no. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's what I yes. thought. Yes. All right, ma'am, uh, the book, Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation and Reconstruction America. It is available starting today in many bookstores and online. And I can, you know, I'll, I'll bet you'll be able to find one here in Sheridan pretty quick. It is Yellowstone, <laughs> Yellowstone National Park's 150th birthday. Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Uh, it has been a real pleasure, ma'am. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. All right. You've been listening to Public Pulse on 930 KROE and 103.9 FM. Share it in. Today isn't just another ordinary day. It's time for you to make a career change. And your locally owned McDonald's in Sheridan, Buffalo, and Gillette would like you to join their team. Owner Larry Storrow. Bob, you can earn up to $15 per hour. And even better is that you can work today and get paid tomorrow. We'll help you improve your career potential with benefits that include health insurance, paid vacation, tuition assistance, flexible scheduling, food discounts, and more. Apply in person today at your locally owned McDonald's in Sheridan, Buffalo, and Gillette. Hi, I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti, and you're listening to News Talk 930 KROE. The Transportation Department of Sheridan County School District 2 is currently seeking motivated, knowledgeable professionals to join their team in three separate positions. Part-time bus drivers, a full-time lead mechanic, and an assistant transportation director. These jobs are well-paid and extremely important to the safe transportation of students throughout the district. For more information, visit them online at scsd2.com. That's scsd, the number 2.com. I'm your digital pro, Kim Commando. You're listening to News Talk 930 KROE. The Wyo Theater welcomes Nobuntu to the stage 7.30 p.m. Friday, March 4th. This female a cappella quintet from Zimbabwe represents a new generation of young African women singers and has drawn international acclaim for their cultural preservation through song. Nobuntu, March 4th. Get your tickets now at the Wyo Theater box office or online at wyotheater.com. Would you look at the time? It's tax time. You already know H&R Block does taxes, but here's what you may not know when you file with H&R Block, like how you can get expert help in person or virtually. Plus, our tax pros average 10 years of experience. You can even request to work with the same tax pro every year, and your biggest possible refund is always guaranteed. No one offers more ways to help with your taxes than H&R Block. At H&R Block, help is here. Hi, this is Barb from your family-owned H&R Block in Sheridan. Visit us today. When it's time to restock your office supplies, let the Sheridan Commercial Company help. Hi, Kurt Smith here for the Sheridan Commercial Office Supply Department. We have a selection of office supplies in the store for your needs today. But a huge selection of office supplies is in our new office supply website, SheridanCommercial.com. We have thousands of office supplies that you can order online and have delivered to your office or to our store. If it's time to restock and review the office supplies, Stop on by the Sheridan Commercial Company or go online at SheridanCommercial.com. From Jill Bates and the best real estate studio. K-R-O-B.